Soren. Let us pray together. Dear God, here we are gathered once again around your word. And we thank you for the way that when your Holy Spirit comes and moves in our midst, you are always with us and you guide us more fully to be your faithful people. Come Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. During a sabbatical that I had back in 2004, my family retraced uh, the footsteps of the second missionary journey of Paul through the land of Greece. Jasmine was just a toddler back then, two years old, and uh, it turned out to be one of the most precious family experiences we've ever had together. We still reminisce and laugh about it to this day. Another important thing that happened during that trip is that the Bible came alive for me in a brand new way, especially the stories about the early church. And these stories impacted my ministry in a way that has changed me ever since. One day during that trip through Greece, the three of us squeezed into our little red fiat, about the size of the uh, golf cart that Ken Knoll used to drive. You know what I'm talking about, pretty small. Pretty big for a golf cart, pretty small for a car. And we headed to Corinth, the ancient city of fabulous wealth, and fast living, some people call it the Las Vegas of the ancient world, well, we went there to see the city where Paul had planted a church long ago. And standing there amidst the ruins of that ancient city with its magnificent temples to every god, I was suddenly given a brand new appreciation for Paul. I mean, imagine for a moment, just imagine, this Jewish artisan, maker of leather tents, trudging into this fabulous, thriving port city. And then upon his arrival, imagine him proclaiming that it is through a crucified Jew, far away, named Jesus, that the one and only true God has taken away our sins and brought reconciliation to our broken world. And that through this Jesus, God has unmasked and triumphed over every earthly power, including the empire in which they are now living. That, my friends, took a whole lot of courage, a whole lot of stubborn courage. 
During my family's visit, we walked through Corinth with a guidebook in one hand and our New Testament open in the other. And particularly, we find many, many details about Paul's ministry in Corinth in Acts 18. How he spends 18 whole months there ministering and making leather tents with Aquila and Priscilla. And even today, it's still possible to see rows of shops where they may have lived and worked together. Not only that, but it's also possible to see an ancient synagogue, perhaps the very synagogue that Paul was kicked out of very early in his time in Corinth. Now, Acts 18.7 says that Paul and a small congregation then start meeting in the home of a wealthy man named Titius Justus whose home is big enough to accommodate their house church. And it's under their roof that they begin to gather regularly to hear and to relive the reconciling story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And friends, the central way that they relive that story is by sharing together a meal. What is called for the very first time in 1 Corinthians, the Lord's Supper. A meal given by Jesus to shape His followers into the church they are meant to become together. Let me say that again. This meal is given to us by Jesus, to shape us into the church that we're meant to be together. And the folks in Corinth discover that as they regularly eat and drink to remember Jesus, they discover that this remembering, remembering, has such a deeper meaning than just recalling a past event. I invite you to turn to our reading in 1 Corinthians 11. As Soren told you, it's in your bulletin. And we can thank the... uh, divided and factionalized church in Corinth for the fact that we have this letter here today and that we're reading it here in Lancaster. So a few years after leaving Corinth, Paul receives some very disturbing news, troubling news, about this particular congregation, and he writes them this letter that you have in front of him. Or front of you. And so once again, as we're often doing in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament, excuse me, we are reading other people's mail. So what exactly is happening in Corinth? Well, 
the church has divided into factions, segregated along economic lines. You see, following local custom, they're in Corinth and they're just doing what the Corinthians all do. Okay? Following local custom, the wealthiest members are being invited to the home of Titius Justice early, before everyone else, to enjoy a banquet that precedes the Lord's Supper. Are you with me? They are feasting on the very best food, the best wine, and some of them are even getting an early start, it seems, on communion. Later, the poor members come, and from early in 1 Corinthians, remember Paul says, not many of you are of noble birth. We know that most of the congregation is poor. So most of the people then show up later on and find much of the food already eaten, and some of the folks even drunk. And when this happens, Paul shouts at them in verse 20, as he is wont to do, this is not really the Lord's Supper, what you're doing together. Verse 27, how can you break bread in such an unworthy manner? Verse 28, how can you fail to examine yourselves deeply before you partake? Verse 29, how can you eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ? So let's unpack these three dense verses here a little bit. First of all, unworthy. I hope that in this context it is very clear that this has nothing to do about Deserving or being good enough to participate. Partaking unworthily, Paul says, is what happens when we fail to discern the body of Christ and make a mockery of the meal that he has given us to transform us into who we really are together. This discerning of the body has both a vertical and a horizontal dimension, much like the two beams of the cross. Vertically, as we share this spiritual food and drink, we discern that our risen Lord is with us. Jesus is made known to us in the breaking of the bread, just as he was with his two friends on the road to Emmaus. And as we remember his amazing forgiveness, his cross and his new covenant with us, we are awakened from our sad dream of separation from him. The Corinthians' casual casual drinking and eating in communion is such a disgrace 
because they are failing to experience this deep, intimate communion with Jesus. Horizontally, discerning the body also means seeing that Christ is not only with us, but that together we are the living body of Christ. In Corinth, the poor members are arriving to find the richer members have already eaten together. And when the poor are humiliated in this way, the body of Christ is being dismembered. Torn apart. And the Lord's Supper is not allowed to do what it's supposed to do. Which is to show the whole wide world that by their sharing of this radical countercultural meal together, not segregated, together, Christ has brought down every dividing wall of gender and class and race. When Corinth looks in their windows and sees them eating together, what a radical, awesome witness to their neighbors. Because the poor and wealthy in Corinth never do that. And it's when we start seeing each other here at East Chestnut as the living body of Christ that we can finally begin to understand why a careful examining of ourselves before communion, as Paul urges us in verse 28, is so crucial. This has nothing to do, this examining, with asking, am I good enough to come forward? Instead, it is about asking, am I in right relationship with Christ? And is repentance or reconciliation needed with some other member of his body, of which we are all a part? Because nothing breaks the unity and the witness of the church more than broken relationships. And nothing builds up the body more than our ongoing work of reconciliation and healing with one another. And in case you didn't notice it, this is serious business. Paul tells us in verse 29, it's serious business. And God's going to hold us all accountable for this. Beginning with me. Friends, did you know that the early church, excuse me, the early Anabaptists, 
So we're fast-forwarding to the Reformation now. People like Conrad Grable, Pilgrim Marpeck, Balthazar Hubmeyer. These early Anabaptists believed that a miraculous transformation, transubstantiation, happens in the Lord's Supper. They believed that the transformation, though, doesn't happen in the bread and the cup, but in the people. We are transformed into the living and breathing body of Christ as we share this meal together. And friends, when we see that we are the living and breathing body of Christ together, why don't you just raise your hand and touch lightly the person next to you. Touch Jesus. Touch the body. Put down your hands. When we're aware of this reality, our significant differences and our deeply held convictions do not suddenly change. But the way that we hold them does. The way that we care for each other, the way that we bear with one another in love, the way that we move toward one another rather than away as we have these past weeks, the way that we listen deeply and carefully to one another in a congregational meeting. All these things are changed and transformed. So this morning, dear brothers and sisters, as we share this meal, let us discern the body as each of us comes forward. Let us see the body of Christ and be transformed into who we really are together. Amen.